Hi guys, this is just Tom, Paul and Christiana here at the top of the episode. We wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Our numbers have been going so up so much in the last few weeks. We really appreciate you listening, all the feedback, etc. We're really glad that we can be a part of your self-isolation wherever you are. We just wanted to ask you at the very top of the episode, could you do us a favour? And we don't often ask for this, but it would mean so much if you could do it. If you could go to wherever you get your podcast from, if you're enjoying the podcast, give us a rate. It takes three seconds. You have to give it a star rating. You don't necessarily have to fill in any information to write any feedback, although we'd love it if you do. But a star rating makes such a difference. Five is a good number. I can recommend five stars if you're enjoying Five's the podcast. Five's a great number, actually. Right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Actually, that... my favorite number is seven. Seven. Well, I don't know where you get your podcast from, but oh. if you get... Ten, hundred, thousand, million, billion. Please don't let these suggestions slow you down. Five is fine. Just the maximum. Let's go with that. Thank you so much. We are so appreciative of you listening. Please keep sending your feedback. Here's the episode. Hello and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Rivet-Karnak. I'm still Cristiana Figueres. And I've always been Paul Dickinson. Excuse me, the Paul Dickinson. <laughs> ah, thank you for adding the definite article, like the Aga Khan, like the Dalai Lama, the Pope, and the Paul Dickinson. Thank you, Cristiana. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. This week on The Outrage and Optimism, we talk about the relationship between the market and the state in a time of crisis, and we speak to Nobel laureate Professor Joseph Stiglitz. Thanks for being here. Hey guys, it's nice to be back with you. I missed out on participating last week. We missed you, Tom. We you, missed you. You know what, though? It is a real pleasure to not have to schedule to come to the podcast, but still have one arrive in my inbox. I listened to it while ah. I was doing the recycling. It was lovely. How did we go home alone without you, Tom? You listened to it while you were doing recycling. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what that means. Was it that bad, the podcast that you had to do recycling, or was the recycling that bad? What, could you please tell us about the relationship between the two? No, 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 no. This is, this is a small insight into my life. So what I like to do is um, wander around doing household tasks while listening to a podcast. So if you're sorting out the glass from the plastic or putting the paper in there or doing a bit of washing up, I'm just kind of always wandering around my phone listening to a podcast. So Outrage and Optimism last week, had the honour of being listened to during the recycling. And it was a wonderful accompaniment to the recycling. I see. I had a sense that there was something amazing <laughs> going to happen in the future when we were recording, but now I know what it is. Okay, so look, where, where, like, where are we all? Presumably we're all exactly where to... Yeah, Christiana, where are you? Well, well, we haven't moved. Marina and I have not moved at all. This is day 20 <gasps> of our self-isolation in a tiny little town called... Paul, do you remember what the town is called? Um, yeah, I've I, I kind of nearly Puerto perfected. Puerto Jimenez. <laughs> yeah, good job, Tom. Puerto Jimenez, exactly. Puerto so Jimenez, that's what I was about to say. Yeah, it's a tiny, tiny little town. Um, and we're not even in town, we're outside of town. So day 20. Day 20. Well, I'm on day 17, I think, of what was going to be 21 days. Um, although I did just see that the government in the UK is now reviewing that. And I think it's going to be inevitably extended probably for another three weeks so 
you know, we're, we're, we're getting through it. Um, but can I just I chip in here? Like, I have absolutely no idea what day it is. I've completely <laughs> lost track. Everything is just, I've licked all the walls in the lounge. I'm now licking the corridors and the ceilings. Um, everything has always been like this. And this is a new world that I live in probably forever. You, you could go live on Instagram Paul, licking Paul, the walls. Paul, I do have, yeah, yeah, that would be interesting. Paul, I do have um, a question for you. You do not cook. You have never cooked in your life. Um, the most that you do, if I remember correctly, is you put bran into a bowl and then hopefully there's some milk in the fridge. That's and you cool. breakfast. Cereal. Two- Christiana. Yeah. That's breakfast. That's breakfast. Yep. That's breakfast. That's your cooked breakfast. Now, how are you surviving, given the fact that you should not be walking out on the streets? Uh-huh. To buy, for example, brioche. Uh, for, for example... <laughs> It's true. I've got a brioche place that's just around the corner. We can leave home. We can leave home, but we just have to stay a long way away from people. And then we can go to the park and walk around as long as we're exercising. Although police will come to the park and say, go home, but only if you're lying down sunbathing. Don't ask me why. I, I don't think you've understood the restrictions, actually, Paul. I think I don't think so either. You're Paul. not supposed to leave home unless it's absolutely essential. Once a day for exercise is absolutely essential. Oh, I see. And, and you pick up a brioche on the way. I see. I pick up a brioche on the way back, or sometimes they have these hot cross buns that are to die for. They're just like from another order of, of baking because um, they're kind of like moist and they've got sort of sugary stuff on the top and it's just exquisite. But anyway, um, <laughs> so then let's do that. And then I go to the shop where I buy meals that are... Um, that go in uh, my microwave and salad so I don't, you know, just live off microwave food. And it's not as good as it was. I'll be the first to admit it, but I'm getting used to it. And, um, you know, I've forgotten my luxuries, to be honest with you. It'll be lovely when they come back, but for now, they're as far away as some distant shore unimaginable. (laughs) Okay, well, I guess that's a way to survive. I'm glad to hear you're getting through it. I have to say, being at home all this amount of time has done wonders for my baking. I've started making sourdough, which I make every day, and I'm very sad I can't share with you. So I've constantly got, my wife calls it my, my, my third baby because it's amazing how much effort a sourdough starter requires to keep it alive. But I've constantly got sourdough on the go and it's really satisfying. I've discovered actually that there is nothing I've ever done professionally that gives me the same level of satisfaction as baking a loaf of bread. <laughs> Well, since both Paul and I have spent many professional hours with you, we both feel highly complimented. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. It's like a huge international baking of bread loaf, international loaf agreement, whatever. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, the Paris Agreement, what was that? You can make, now I can make a decent loaf of sourdough. Right. That's right. the pinnacle. Tom, I will not let anyone at the UN climate secretariat know that you have just said that right that will be a totally kept secret does it does it diminish us all or does it actually make us realize how important the bread bakers are to be honest with you and actually that that they're the they're the people who are powering us through this this crisis no honestly not now thank you very much paul for finally bringing up something that truly is important because i would like to share with you that in Costa Rica, in case you didn't know, it is the most wonderful country on the planet. And in Costa Rica, we are basically self-sufficient with respect to food. So, um, so we haven't had any food shortages here. But here's the trick. 
the farmers who are producing all of our fruits and vegetables uh, have been concerned that because of the lack of transport, that it, they're going to A, lose their crops because no one, they, they can't deliver as easily as they could before. Um, and of course, they'll lose their income. So what did these the Farmer Association do? They got organized onto a scoreboard where they, obviously digital, where they um, make it very clear when they're going to harvest what. Big harvest of tomatoes here for Tuesday, the melons on Wednesday, the avocados on Thursday, whatever. And they say, you know, geographically where it is. And then the transport association, the owners of all of these trucks, got together and decided that they will voluntarily go pick up the food that is available from the fresh harvest and begin to distribute it to the homes of people who have lost their jobs and who are at home and have no income. So that's been going on now for about a week in Costa Rica, uh, meaning, of course, that A, the food is not getting spoiled and wasted, B, those people who cannot afford to purchase food are getting fresh fruits and vegetables. And that there is a growing sense of solidarity in this wonderful country. So I'm sorry to tell you, but our passport is not available to you. <laughs> That's well, a lovely story, Christiana. I like that. Very nice. So this week, we thought actually it would be really interesting to have a broad conversation about some of the things that are unfolding with the pandemic and some of the, the underlying dynamics that are changing. And in particular, to focus on the relative roles of the market and the state in dealing with crises. Now, we have seen in this pandemic a remarkable intervention by the state in most advanced economies around the world, where the UK, where Paul and I are, has stepped in and basically guaranteed everyone's incomes. The US has massively increased support for those out of work. Now, 10 million individuals have filed for unemployment benefits, and they're all getting more generous support from the federal government than they ever have before. The markets are crumbling, of course, around the world. Stocks are dropping and many countries are now predicting jobless rates of nearly 30%. And the result of all this is that there is more government in most of our lives than there has been ever before. And that is with a Republican in the White House and a Conservative in number 10. So I think it's right to say that all three of us would strongly support government intervention, even in normal times, to protect the vulnerable, and especially during these times of crisis. But we would also support the innovative capabilities of the market to create new solutions and deploy them and help us solve key issues like climate change. So I thought it would be interesting for us to take a few minutes now before we talk to Professor Stiglitz about that dynamic and about what's changing in the world at the moment and what we think it might mean as we emerge from this crisis. What do you think? Sounds good to me, Tom. Um, I think it's the I think it's the issue of the time, and you know our open kind of free society, so to say. You know that people can um, entrepreneurialism and all the rest of it can kind of flourish as a game. Let's call it an enormous game. But what I think we're learning is that that game needs to have rules. Mm. And if there's one thing I'm taking from the from the crisis, it's 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 the ultimate cost benefit lesson. I was actually reading um, the director of the Wellcome Trust, which is a big uh, charitable grant making trust in the UK um, that supports medical research. Uh, Jeremy Farah, and he was writing in the Financial Times today, saying, "Look, just look at the cost of this pandemic. 
And think how much money we could have saved if we'd prepared for it, if we'd, if we'd put in preventative measures. Mm. And of course, I'm thinking, this is exactly the message in the learning from climate change. So I'm seeing a huge role for the state and society setting those rules and then allowing and facilitating the entrepreneurialism uh, to kind of complete the picture of, of how we live. But I can see on Zoom, Christiana is thinking deeply. She's in her thinking mode, isn't she? She definitely is. <laughs> well, I've been thinking, um, how are we going to perceive or what is our expectation going to be of the role of government, whether it is federal or state or city, but certainly federal government, after we are through this crisis or as we move on into the crisis? But also, how are we going to expect corporations to act? And interestingly, I think both of those will move in the same direction in the following way. We've always known that the role of government is to protect its citizens. Somehow, on climate change, many governments forgot that that is their first responsibility. Yep. Because they, you know, have argued, well, you know, it's not here yet and it's certainly not within my electoral cycle or not even within my lifetime or whatever. They always find some excuse to not live up to the responsibility of protecting their citizens. Now with this imminent threat directly on our doorstep, um, on everyone's doorstep, all of a sudden governments have remembered. It's almost like a little remembering uh, mm -hmm. exercise here that the first responsibility of governments is to protect citizens. And it is extraordinary the way governments have in full knowledge of the fact that they're incurring deficit levels that they have never seen before, but that they are doing that because their first responsibility is to save the lives and livelihoods of their citizens, fully well knowing that the price tag is going to be huge. That's, you know, quite extraordinary that we have seen that flip in a very, very short time. And I'm hoping that that's going to be sticky. I'm hoping that government's responsibility to protect their citizens is going to be sticky. And mm. so that's the big question now. Have we suffered enough? Have we gone to the bottom enough to make these two lessons, one for governments and one for, for corporations, to make them sticky beyond the, the point in which we will have normalized our conditions? That is the big question. If we're able to do that, wow, what an advancement we will have had. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you, Christiana. I think that part of the challenge in what you say is sort of inherent in one of the ways in which you framed it, right? Because the what we've seen has been an, the amazing spectacle of a very a series of very right-of-centre political figures and parties being prepared to behave like socialists under certain conditions but the conditions that they've been responding to have been highly acute. So they have seen a political price that they would have to pay in a matter of a few months, and they've pivoted and been 
prepared in, in, in to do things that probably weren't associated with their deeper political instincts in terms of how they would have managed the economy, right? Now, that is great in many ways, although it could have gone further and the structure of it, there's all sorts of ways of discussing that. But, but trying to, that long-term deeper governance, that a sort of statesmanship where somebody is able to see a risk coming down the road. And with climate change, let's not forget, of course, that the way it shows up in our lives is different from the solution, right? So, you know, cl climate change manifests as migration and vector-borne disease changes, etc. And so you need to manage the core problem, not just keep kind of cutting the head off the hydra as it keeps emerging in life. So I think that hopefully what this has done is it has shaken our sense of powerlessness in the face of great challenge. But I'm not convinced at the moment that what we're seeing is a kind of ability to have better governance in the face of emerging risk. We're seeing sort of political panic and firefighting at the moment. It's what comes next that will be more telling. Well, but that that's the point. So is it going to be sticky, right? I, th I think we will continue to see this paradigm, let's call it, of solidarity on the part of both governments and corporations, certainly during the crisis, certainly during the health crisis, and, um, and likely during the economic crisis as we all pull out of that. But the question then is, is it going to be sticky beyond that, right? That's the big yeah. question. Uh, or rather, or rather, let's ask a more helpful question, not just, is it going to be sticky beyond or not? How can we make it sticky? That would be an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. What can we do now to increase the probability that those, you know, enlightened actions are actually going to be more sticky? I don't know what the answer is. Paul knows. Well, I would I would encourage all of our... I do know, actually, the answer, not just to this question, but to, you know, a very large number of questions. But on this one particularly, right? And uh, I, I have a little quote here from uh, Thomas Hobbes, who in 1651 explained how the government worked. And he said, the obligations of the subjects to the government is understood to last as long and no longer than the power lasts by which the government is able to protect them. And that's the point Extinction Rebellion have been making for a long time, is that we uh, we will submit to the government uh, to, to, to have, you know, the, the, the control uh, of society. And in exchange, we expect to be protected. So we've gone through a, like a massive uh, investigation of that here. Um, I believe that after this, if we can keep that recognition, government can also make the rules, uh, you know, use the policy instruments to architect public safety, both for pandemics and climate change, and then we'll be good. No, it's absolutely right. So if only we could have access to somebody who won, say, a Nobel Prize, who could give us more insight into this than our own rambling reflections from our no, own experience. No, but you'd need someone who you'd, you would need yeah. someone who'd been chief uh, been chief economist at the World Bank as well, really? or yeah. some, and also someone who'd been like chair of the uh, Council of Economic Priorities for the U.S. President. Uh, who could be such a person? So Paul, of course, is talking about the very eminent Professor Joseph Stiglitz, who is a professor at Columbia University. He has held all of those incredibly prestigious positions that Paul mentioned, including chair of the Council of Economic Advisors for President Clinton, chief economist at the World Bank, um, and a recipient, of course, in a Nobel Prize in economics. We were very privileged to speak with Professor Stiglitz at his home in Manhattan. He dialed in. Here's the conversation. Thank you. 
Well, Professor Stiglitz, thank you so much for taking uh, taking the time to join us here on Outrage and Optimism. You have been very busy lately. Uh, we have read many articles and heard your interventions. Uh, everyone is turning to you for some analysis and some guidance, not necessarily for the health uh aspect of the crisis that we're in, but rather for the economic hit that everyone is beginning to face, or at least those who have gone through the worst of the health curve. It, the economic hit hasn't uh, quite reached, let's say, Africa yet, but will. So we we have heard from several that the economic crisis that we are facing could take us to something worse than uh, what we experienced after World War II. Is that your sense? Is it going to get that severe? And in particular, how do you see us coming out of this with the respective different waves of recovery uh, first and then stimulus packages that are being put in place by some governments, although not all. Yeah, so so this is going to be a very deep uh, economic downturn. Uh, the, uh, the prospect that the unemployment rate may easily reach 20, 25, 30% uh, is very clear. Uh, is that global? Uh, well, no, for, for particular countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, in developing countries, it's very hard to measure uh, the unemployment rate. Uh, and that's one of the devastating aspects of this. Uh, there are people with jobs, say taxicab drivers, uh, but with very few customers. So they're officially employed, uh, but uh, they're not making uh, a living. Now, the question of how we get out of this, um, the first thing to remember is this is very different in uh, its cause. It's different because normally uh, it's uh, a decrease in aggregate demand, sometimes caused by the breaking of a bubble like the housing bubble, uh, a mismanagement of the financial system as in 2008. Um, but this is a, a case where it is both demand and supply. Uh, it's a, a problem caused by the virus and people not wanting to go to work and not wanting to go to the places where they would consume. Um, but whatever the source of a crisis, when you have uh, this kind of uh, uh, downturn, uh, it eventually morphs into uh, financial problems, liquidity problems, aggregate demand problems, uh, diminishing uh, diminution of the balance sheet. So even though it started as a uh, health crisis, it will uh, within already and certainly even more within a few months translate into uh, a crisis of the more conventional kind. Mm-hmm. Um the difficulty is we don't know how long this is going to last. Uh, if it were clear that it would be two months, and then you could ask me, well, what would happen? How do we restart it after two months? But uh, it, it could last uh, for months and months and months. And in places where there is pandemic gets under control, 
there will still be the anxiety of will it return. Mm -hmm. And there will still be the problem of other places that have not yet brought it under control. So reigniting the economy is going to face these uh, particular challenges. Yeah, uncertainties. Very much. Well, but let's talk let, let's talk about the reigniting of the economy because it will not come as a surprise to you that many in the climate field have been saying the scale of the recovery packages and the stimulus packages is so great and so unprecedented that it will basically either accelerate decarbonization if it is dedicated to those sectors that will accelerate the energy transition or if the opposite is true if you know what the if it is the high carbon uh, companies and sectors that are bailed out uh, then it's actually going to completely derail any efforts sadly not enough but even the incipient efforts that have been made to decarbonize the economy and it's the scale of the package right or the packages because there will be several waves of them um but trillions and trillions of dollars put in fresh if put into the economy where where are you on that uh, on that argument do you think we stand a chance and i think the us and europe are two very very contrasting examples here or do we stand a chance of being able to align this uh economic meltdown with a um a decarbonization because we're not going to be putting this scale of fresh money into the economy two times in a row even in five or ten years yeah uh I, as you say, uh, what's going to happen may differ from, markedly between Europe and the United States. And uh, it may differ uh, depending on what happens in the election in the United States in November. It is an opportunity. And even in the uh, current political climate, uh, there are some efforts to, to uh, seize this opportunity. For instance, uh, There are pressures being put, brought to bear to say anybody uh, receiving the money has to put in place, you might call green policies. Green strings attached. Yeah, exactly. So uh, when the measures, uh, the bailout measures first got introduced, there were a number of conditionalities uh, that were imposed, including some green conditionalities. Uh, some governance conditionalities, the money shouldn't be going to these corporations while they're laying off workers and CEO pay is going skyrocketing. So uh, there were conditionalities, but not as many green conditionalities as there should have been. Uh, I gather there have been some green Uh, conditionalities. Uh, you know, it was a very big bill and people haven't really read through the whole thing, but it appears there are new stories about green conditionalities have been having been put uh, on the airlines. Uh, we'll see how they get implemented uh, and uh, how, you know, and obviously this can change uh, over time. That in, in many ways is the most hopeful note in terms of the bailouts. But There's going to be, as you said, uh, uh, some further expenditures um, because uh, as much as was spent, it was mostly predicated on the belief that it was going to be a short term, you know, one month, two, two month shutdown. And those views have revised dramatically 
And people are now talking about three, four, five months. Uh, and that means there's going to be need to be more money and people are going to be thinking more explicitly about rekindling the economy, reigniting the economy. And as I said, uh, the longer it lasts, the more likely there's going to be a lack of aggregate demand uh, when the economy uh, is finally able, when the pandemic uh, has been uh, tamed. Um, that's the opportunity really to uh, make uh the big inroads on, on green, uh, on a green economy. So for instance, uh, one of the questions is what are the things that we can, uh, do to get money into the system quickly? Um, some of the things we need most, particularly in the United States are, uh, infrastructure, green infrastructure, but that's going to take time. But there Mm -hmm. are other things like solar panels, uh, that can be scaled up very quickly. So there'll have to be uh, a lot of thought given to what kinds of green expenditures can be mobilized uh, relatively quickly. And that kind of thinking should be going on right now so that in two or three months or four months time, uh, we're really ready to go. Hmm. So Professor, I can ask a question about um what seems to be like the lesson of of this extraordinary moment in human history which is that there's a there seems to be a vast kind of cost benefit lesson here that clearly if we'd put a little bit more money into prevention and the control of pandemics we could have saved ourselves trillions of dollars how can we communicate to policymakers that same lesson and transpose it to climate change uh, yeah a very good point i think there are a couple lessons uh, that's one, and the importance of science uh, is another. Uh, the The fact is that our economy is, has repeatedly shown itself to be short-term and unable to deal effectively with long-term risks. And we saw that in 2008, where the banks undertook la- lending that gave them more money in the short-term, but put the entire global economy uh, at risk. Uh, More recently, what we saw is the Trump administration cut out uh, the White House office in pandemics, underfunded the CDC, totally defunded uh, the office that did research on viruses that go from animals to humans, precisely the problem that we're dealing with uh, today. It failed to replenish the stockpile and to maintain the ventilators. Uh, All that saved money in the short term, uh, but of course has exposed us uh, in the long term. And a result of that will be thousands and thousands of people whose lives will unnecessarily have been lost in the economy is paying an enormous price. So we got a very little short-term gain and we're paying literally trillions of dollars and uh, thousands of lives uh, in response. Hmm. That kind of short-termism is really pervasive. Uh, You know, I see it in the economy where car producers uh, in the United States recently uh, have left out the spare tire. They saved a little money, but... Uh, when you have a flat tire, you really need it. Yeah. And that kind of short-termism is really pervasive. And as you say, 
it is pervasive in our dealing with climate change. We're saving a little bit money now, uh, and we're exposing ourselves to enormous risk. Again, in the United States, we've already seen that risk, where in, in some recent years, we've lost 2% of GDP. We're talking about you know $300 billion dollars uh, that we've lost in natural, in climate-related natural disasters. So to save a little bit of money, we are paying an enormous price. Yeah. Hmm. Professor, I really want to ask you a question about the international landscape of this. But just before we get it, I can't help but ask whether you're seeing any signs from what you've just said that we have learned this lesson of short-termism through what's just happened. I hope so. But, uh, you know, it, uh, I don't see anything in the Trump administration or in many members of his party. Hmm. Very little reflection hmm. on uh, the consequences of the lack of preparedness for a risk and the underfunding of science. Uh, yeah. the, the hostility uh, to science is even evident in the packages that have been put together. You know, they, they bailed out uh, the airlines, they bailed out the big corporations, but uh, no money went to our research universities, hmm. uh, which is, of course, where uh, the breakthroughs in uh, uh, dealing with the pandemic and our understanding of climate change is based. Yeah. So... Uh, What we're seeing right now, at least in the Trump administration, is that same kind of short-sightedness is even there in the response to the crisis. Hmm. Can can I ask, um, you know, we've been talking a bit about the sort of the fiscal stimulus packages in Europe and North America, but of course, and that's really where the... The, the epicenter of the of the virus has been for the last few weeks, but we're already seeing these very concerning signs that it is going to spread through developing countries and through emerging economies. And of course, at that point, there will need to be some kind of packages put together to support those countries to ensure that they don't face, um, you know, terrible humanitarian costs as a result of um, as a result of what they'll endure through the pandemic. What can we do there to ensure that that doesn't turn into, you know, in, in an ideal world, we would structure that in such a way that it didn't make them more vulnerable to subsequent climate risk by just loading more and more debt on top and making it more and more difficult for those countries to thrive in the future. Are you seeing any sort of thoughtful thinking about how those countries can be helped through the difficult days ahead? There is some thinking going on. And let me just highlight, uh, emphasize the fact they, these countries are much more vulnerable, both uh, in health terms and in economic terms. Uh, people live closer together. Uh, uh, their health systems are more fragile. Uh, the individuals are more exposed uh, to w- the kinds of health conditions that this nasty virus uh, takes advantage of uh, and uh, truly has a devastating effect. And unlike the United States, they don't have the fiscal resources to have anything comparable to the kind of uh, $2 trillion uh, package that the United States has and and that Europe uh, will have. So these countries are, quite frankly, in a very precarious uh, position. Uh, Basic humanity would say we would want to do something, but there's also self-interest. Uh, because we live in an interconnected world 
Uh, unless the pandemic is conquered everywhere, it, it has a risk of flaring up everywhere. And uh, if uh, the, the emerging markets in developing countries have been the source of the engine of growth uh, for the last uh, 15 years, and, and if they're weak, it's hard to see how there will be strong global growth. And that that's the conundrum that I see and where I wondered whether, you know, you, you can see our way through that because, yes, it's very evident that this has to have collaborative, multilateral equity, solidarity solutions, both the health and the financial crisis, both. But it is out of national government decisions to do that. How do we get to these to the predominance, let's say, of a paradigm of solidarity, fairness, led by multilateral efforts over the nationalistic closed borders reaction that we have had over in the over the past two weeks or three weeks on the health crisis, but frankly, that we have had over several years from a geopolitical standpoint? Well, the good news is that there are some countries that really do understand this. And they've been working behind the scenes, trying to convince the other countries that have been dragging their feet to go along. So, um, you know, th- this process of <laughs> uh, global diplomacy uh, is unfortunately slow and the virus is fast. And yeah. there's a, 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 a disjoint between uh, the two that may play out to be very costly. But as uh, the magnitude of the global crisis becomes apparent, hopefully the countries will, will see, not, not as a matter of charity, but just as a matter of self-interest, that exactly. they cannot continue uh, to drag their feet uh, on this important issue. There's one more element that you mentioned earlier that I wanted to come back to, which is uh, the question of where will these emerging markets, developing countries, or even the banks countries be at the end of this in their ability to fight climate change? Yes. And here, a critical issue is debt. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that particularly relevant for the developing countries and emerging markets that... Many of them in recent years uh, have taken on uh, a debt burden that has made them precarious, risky, and now the day of reckoning is coming. Uh, their incomes are plummeting. Interest will continue to uh, accumulate. There will be a debt crisis following on the pandemic mm. unless we do something. And our choices here are just basically two. Are we going to have an orderly process or a disorderly one? And a disorderly one is extraordinarily costly. An orderly one begins by saying, while the pandemic is going on, we have to have a stay on interest. Mm -hmm. The global economy is on a stay. It's on a hold, if you want to think of it that way. The one thing going on is the banks are collecting interest. Mm -hmm. The The creditor countries are collecting interest. And even if they say, well, we won't necessarily uh, uh, make you pay right now, those decks will compound exponentially hmm. and late fees will be attached. And so what really needs to be done is a stay on, on all interest. And so when the economy picks up, they won't 
be strangled. The emerging markets, the developed country won't be strangled in their debt. Uh, with a burden of debt mm-hmm. that will make it impossible to deal with the other crises that they're inevitably uh, going to face, including the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Professor, that's that's so interesting. I mean, the, the way these risks are kind of coming at us is largely kind of unappreciated or unreported by so much of the media. Thank you so much for taking this time to explain this to us. Just as as we close out, I'd love to just ask you, um, we call this podcast Outrage and Optimism. We think both of those principles are necessary for dealing with the climate crisis. You have such a sort of deep insight into what's happening here as you, as you look around the world. And obviously, it's heartbreaking to see the unfolding of the pandemic from a human perspective. But as you look at the response that's being put together, do you feel outraged or do you feel optimistic? A, a little element of both. You know, we 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 found uh, these trillions of dollars to uh, respond to the pandemic. I feel optimistic uh, because we were able to do it. Hmm. I feel outraged that we didn't find that money to deal with climate change the year before, the year before. Ten years ago. So uh, (laughs) they said we can't afford it. Yeah. Uh, Of course we could have afforded it. And all of us uh, (laughs) said it would have made our economy stronger. So uh, I'm outraged that we weren't in a better state of preparedness and that we actually, uh, in the last three years under Trump, made ourselves even less prepared And I'm optimistic, still optimistic, that we will have learned the lesson so that we are in a better position in responding to the set of crises that we will inevitably be facing, uh, not only health crises, economic crises, but also uh, the climate crisis and our inequality crisis that that this health crisis has also made so evident. Absolutely. Professor Stiglitz, thank, thank you so much for sharing those insights with us. We greatly appreciate it, your time and everything you're doing on this issue. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Professor. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. What a privilege to get the chance to speak with Professor Stiglitz about all of these different issues. Um, what did you guys leave that conversation with? What did you feel you learned from him? I'm. I was really struck by his, you know, observations about um, about the 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 uncertainty and the anxiety. Um, that means it's very hard to evaluate the economic impact, but fundamentally, a lesson of a lack of preparedness, um, the importance of science in policy, and uh, an underfunding of some key institutions that really could have um, helped uh, helped us much more in this difficult situation. That's what I and I took from it. Not a, not a ringing endorsement of the U.S. government, I'm afraid. Yeah, seriously, Christiana. Well, um, frankly, I'm I'm left with concern because um, I don't I don't think we got a clear answer, and I, I'm not you know expecting him to provide the answer. I'm just expecting all of us as humanity to provide the answer as to how are we going to do this in a collaborative way that responds to solidarity more than to isolationism. And it's clear to me that that has to be done both for the health crisis with respect to vaccine access, as well as the economic crisis and getting out of it, um, and certainly with respect to the climate crisis. And so I'm sort of left honestly with like a stone in my stomach um, because when 
when you look at it, we have been pursuing very um, closed wall measures, right? We're all inside our walls. The borders of countries are closed. Everybody's doing their, you know, um, vaccine development on their own. But I don't have the feeling that we're walking in that direction fast enough with enough purpose and enough determination. I think there is a tug, a tug, a tug and pull there of, you know, multilateral institutions understanding that this has to be the way. And, um, and some governments pulling away and saying, no, 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 we don't want to help anybody else. We're just, you know, going to, going to help ourselves. And, and, and the short sightedness of that to realize that there is no such thing as one country coming out of this on their own. One person infected in any country of this planet is capable of infecting any other country. And so, you know, I'm just, honestly, I'm left with, yeah, with a stone in my stomach about what, when are we going to learn this? When are we going to learn that we're all in the same boat? Hmm. I mean, I think that I I hear you, Christiana, and I think that um, that is obviously concerning. I think that I don't have any sort of solace for that. The only thing I would point out is that we are still in the kind of shock of this. If you look at the stages of grief, which I think is what we will go through as humanity in what's happened, we're still in shock and we're responding as a shocked person or as a shocked society. I do think that there has been good leadership on these things from certain parts of the world. And I feel like as we start to process what's really happened, then we have the opportunity to be a bit more deeply reflective on what type of world do we want to create as we come out of this. But at the moment, we're still in that kind of like we've just it's just happened to us and we're slightly panicked. And I do feel I do see early signs, both concerning signs that this will be the beginning of a more divided world with bigger walls that are attempting to keep out the impossible. But I also see that there is some signs of hope that people are understanding that interconnected nature of what's going on and that they're realising that the future has to be different from the past. And Christiana, one more thing that I hope will, will, will make you feel more positively about this. The global economy has just been kind of switched off and we are going to switch it back on again. And whenever I do that, certainly with my computer, all those things in the background are gone. And just like the one or two applications I'm focused on work at 10 times the speed. That is my hope and belief. That's how we will come out of this. Yeah. Spoken as a true resident of an industrialized country, Paul. Yeah. That's, you know, that that's not as odd. The, the automatic reset is not uh, as easy for developing countries. That's my concern. That's my concern because we keep on talking about the health crisis. We keep on talking about the economic crisis that comes after and the climate crisis. But my friends, I have to remind you, all of that is converging upon another crisis that we have been seeing getting worse and worse and worse, and that's the inequality crisis. And all of this is only going to exacerbate, right? Climate change is going to exacerbate the inequality crisis if we don't deal with it properly. The health crisis, the the economic meltdown, all of that is going to increase the inequality crisis unless we finally wake up to understand that we are all in this boat together. And I keep on thinking of this little boat out there in the ocean and it has a little hole in it. And it is just not true that the two people sitting next to the hole are the ones that are going to drown. If there is a little hole in the boat, everybody in the boat drowns. 
That's the piece that we haven't understood. We just think that the two people sitting next to the hole, well, that, you know, they're expendable. Goodbye. And everybody else is, you know, somehow miraculously going to be saved. Not true. Not true. So sorry, but today I'm just really, really concerned about inequality, growing inequality, and about, you know, our lack of understanding about that the fact that inequality only comes around and bites us in the back. And we can hear it in your voice, Christiana. Thank you. Yeah. There's there's you're absolutely right. And 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 I think one of the things I took away from that conversation with Professor Stiglitz is that, you know. Tragically, we have just seen the the mere foothills of what this means as this virus spreads around the world, right? I mean, there's exactly. now 1.2 million infections. Last time I checked, there was 8 billion people on the planet and the vast majority of them in emerging economies where this virus is just beginning to spread and spread. Now, that is a humanitarian disaster waiting to happen. Um, and as he said, we should, you know, those in developed economies should help as you know, just on a pure basis of from a humanitarian perspective. But he also made the point you're making, Christiana, right? Which is there's a self-interest involved as well. Totally. Either we all come through this together, or if that virus then starts remaining consistently in those places, it just spreads from there out as well. Exactly. I also thought his his point, the fact that all this money has just been spent in dealing with this crisis gives visibility to the lie that it was not possible to do this on climate change. And actually yep. that should provide ample fuel for the outrage for all of the amazing activists and young activists and civil disobedience activists all around the world. When we get, when we are able to get going on all of that action again, all of that apparent sort of like sucker that was given to the attempts to try and do something about climate change is now pales in comparison to the response that was made to the coronavirus. We understand the reasons for that. We're not criticizing it. On the other hand, it was always possible to mobilize as if climate change was an emergency because we've now seen what's possible when governments really think something's an emergency and it looks completely different. Yeah, except that we shouldn't see these two things as being mutually exclusive, right? Yeah. Because the world will never mobilize this. Well, not, I don't know, never, but, you know, it'll be decades before the world can uh, or would be politically willing to mobilize this level of funding. Uh, and uh, as we have discussed, it's only if the funding that goes for the stimulus plan is actually one that goes into the clean technologies, clean industries, et cetera, et cetera. That way we're providing jobs for people who are out of jobs and we're accelerating decarbonization. So, you know, while we have seen the convergence of these crises, right, we have all of these crises converging on each other, we also have to converge the solution. And if we don't converge the solution, then we're going to be left with this piecemeal approach crisis by crisis by crisis that is completely unmanageable. Yeah. It's only if we really, you know, extend our arms and say, right, you know, embrace all of these crises, inequality, climate change, the health crisis and the meltdown, and we put them all together and we say, right, how do we address, how do we use these funds that are now being mobilized to actually address all of that together coherently at the same time? Then we actually can, uh, can move forward. Yeah. And, and I would have to say, I, I believe that the vulnerability that even the most rich and powerful people uh, feel in the world right now can help grow the empathy and that sense of collective security that you speak of with such passion, Christiana. Okay. Thanks, guys. All right. So um, 
This has been fascinating to have this kind of journey into what's happening here and the response to it. I mean, there's solutions and there's a long way to go for us to really get on top of what's happening here. But, you know, we're we're understanding more about what's happening with this virus. We're understanding about its intersection with all these issues that we have struggled with for so long. And we'll keep going with this little mini series to dig deeper. Um, this was a great conversation today with Professor Stiglitz. Um, just before we go, I wanted to say a while ago, we made an offer to hand out some books to people who had been self-isolating from coronavirus. At that point, self-isolating from coronavirus seemed to be a kind of rare and exotic thing to be doing. That was before half of humanity started doing that. But we were thrilled to distribute those books. Uh, we ran out. We had a huge amount of interest and we sent messages and sent books to uh, quite a number of people around the world. And we've had some lovely messages back. So thank you for that. And we will keep looking for another box of books so we can send them out to more people around the world. But in the meantime, hope you're enjoying the podcast. Uh, we're going to keep doing it. Thanks for joining us. We really, really appreciate you listening. And we'll see you next week. Bye for now. Bye. So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. This week on Monday, we did a free live stream event together on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And I'd like to thank everyone that showed up and participated. We had so much engagement from all of you and such a positive response that we might do more of them in the future, so stay tuned for that. If you weren't able to join or think your invitation might have gotten lost in the mail, no worries, we published a recording of it online and I put a link in the show notes of this episode that you can click to view the whole thing. Okay, without further ado, Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell an executive produced by the Marina Mancilla Herman. We're doing these now, so it's a thing. And there's the team that makes this whole thing happen. Thanks to Callum Grieve, Pete Kluttenbrock, Sarah Thomas, Chloe Revel, Daniel Fink, Sylvie Snow Thomas, and the team at L Communications, Zoe Cholak-Antich, Lara Richardson, James Douglas, Caitlin Allen, Sharon Johnson, Nigel Topping, and Michael Northrup. A special thanks to Caleb Oldham, Susana DiMartino, Andrea Gerwitt, Anya Schifrin, and our guest, Professor Joseph Stiglitz. Without them, the interview this week would not have happened. Thank you. And now, my weekly public service announcement. As I'm sure most of us know, this pandemic is not going away anytime soon. And in some vulnerable areas of the world, it is only beginning. If you can download a podcast, you can for sure take simple preventative measures to slow the spread of COVID-19. Washing hands, staying home when possible, self-isolating, and many more small acts of courage have immeasurable positive outcomes. The World Health Organization has the information that you need to keep you and everyone you love safe. You can check the show notes for a link to their instructions. Please educate yourself and others. Thank you. Next week, same time, same place. See you then.